Welcome to Soundstage Insider, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the film and television industry. We're bringing you the visionary directors and producers, the talented cinematographers, editors, sound designers, and more who really make the magic happen. We delve deep into their stories, their struggles, and their triumphs. So let's go beyond the red carpet and discover a fascinating world of behind-the-scenes talent. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Soundstage Insider, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain of the film and television industry. I'm your host, Jamie Muffet, and today we have an extraordinary treat for you. Get ready to dive into the world of music, composition and scoring as we sit down with the brilliant and versatile artist, Chris Bowers. Chris Bowers, an American composer and pianist, has been captivating audiences with his compositions for over 10 years. From scoring films like the critically acclaimed Green Book and King Richard, to his work on television series such as Bridgerton, Mrs. America and the groundbreaking Dear White People and When They See Us, Bowers has become a force to be reckoned with in the industry. Chris's new project, Anthem, released on Hulu on June 28th, is a musical journey across the US in an attempt to reimagine the national anthem. Chris Bowers' talent has garnered him a Daytime Emmy Award for his work on Amazon Prime's adaptation of The Snowy Day, as well as multiple nominations at the Primetime Creative Arts Emmy Awards, Grammy Awards, and Critics' Choice Awards. Bowers' remarkable contributions to the industry were further highlighted when he received an Academy Award nomination for co-directing the captivating documentary short A Concerto is a Conversation. Collaborating with icons like Jay-Z, Kanye West and Jose James, and his friendship with Aretha Franklin, and yes, we talk about that in the interview, Bowers has continually pushed boundaries and crafted an extraordinary musical legacy. We kick off the interview with me asking Chris how he got started in musical composition for film and TV. There were actually kind of a few starts. Um, When I was in college, I had scored a couple of uh, shorts by a friend of mine and very, very small, minimal amount of music. Like one was just the end credits and one was like a short little doc that she had done. And then um, the first kind of more professional thing I did was a a documentary about Elaine Stritch and Mm. the Broadway actress. And that happened primarily uh, because my manager at the time, this woman who was my manager for a few years after I won the monk competition she was friends with the director and i talked so much about film scoring that she was like i want to get you your first film scoring job and they wanted a jazz score for that movie and i just won this jazz competition so it kind of worked out pretty perfectly and so i did that and then i did another documentary by that that director produced but then i didn't do anything for a little while and then i scored a documentary about kobe bryant and i feel like that's the one that i count as really getting my career started because ever since then I've I've been uh, fully in this career and in this industry and that came from a friend of mine who I knew in an, an, a high school all-star jazz band and we um, talk I talked so much about film scoring and he remembered that and so he came up to me after a show of mine and asked me if I would score this documentary about Kobe that he was producing uh, but that really led to like a number of other documentaries and the Sundance Composers Lab and like some of my first big projects. So, um, yeah. That's very interesting. And is working behind the scenes attractive particularly versus being a performer and being like the sort of face of the thing or or is it just creatively you were drawn to film and TV? I mean, it's, it's a bit of both. I mean, even as a uh, as a performer, I liked being a pianist because you could be an accompanist a lot and then also Mm. at times kind of come out um in the front and so i liked that my malleability of of where i was um in terms of like being seen on the stage and then uh, there was really a passion for film scoring because of how much music was a and still is a uh, an emotional vehicle for me. So for me, the piano was a way to express emotions that I couldn't express verbally in as clear of a way. And 
that's what attracted me to film scoring was this idea of translating emotion into music. And so I, I wanted to get into it ever since I was I was a kid. Is there a visual component to your creativity too, even though you're just doing the music part? Is that is that inspirational too? Is that a big part of it? Yeah, there's something really visceral that happens when I'm absorbing something visually and mm. again, trying to express that the best way I can express that is through music. But I find even writing music outside of film music, it's often helpful for me to have visuals that I'm reacting to. So I'll either find yeah. a painting or some like screenshots from a movie or things like that, just because it sets a very clear tone that I can you know, meditate on and then just kind of express musically. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So let's talk about the very early stages of a project. I'm fascinated about what that first or how you pick your projects, I guess, is, is the first stage. Are you sent opportunities? Do you put your name forward for things? How, how does it work? Yeah, these days I'm sent uh, things and oftentimes from the creators that I've been, you know, establishing a relationship with and a, a connection with. And so for me, I feel fortunate that a lot of the collaborators I've been working with are continuing to grow in their careers or are pretty established in their careers. And so I'm not needing to go look for work as much as just um, mm. for them to have the next thing that they have going on and, and hopefully be a part of that. And even with that, I'm still wanting to make sure it's something that creates a, a visceral reaction in me emotionally. And so uh, I'm just responding to whatever I'm uh, reading, if they send me the script or whatever I'm watching and hoping that it has something that really goes deep into the psyche of a character or, um, you know, creates this world that's really complex and interesting. But uh, for me, the complexity of both characters and, and um, you know, worlds that are built, I think, are the things that make me feel most drawn to the projects I work on. And is it always a script or do you ever get other visual medium or are you brought in partway through a project and then you've got more to go on in terms of, you know, the vibe of the thing? Yeah, uh, it really varies. So at times it's a script, sometimes it's a first cut, like they just finished filming and they have the first assembly cut put together and I watch that. Sometimes it's while they're filming and they have some like dailies they can send me. Uh, and then there are even times where they're pretty much done with the edit and I'm coming in with, you know, a, a few weeks left. And so I always prefer the earlier part of uh, the process, but um, mm. we have come in on a wide range of, of uh, you know, stages. And so you mentioned sort of a gut reaction, right, to the to whatever it is, the script or the the media. Is it purely that? Is it is is that what piques your interest? Just a pure creative spark that comes from reading a script or watching something that what that gets you interested in the project? Yeah, and and the people involved. You know, I think yeah. that when I see. I often will go to the the work that they've worked on before if we haven't worked together already and see if that's something that uh feels the way that uh, I like, you know, my content or my media to to feel. And so I watch their shows or their movies they've worked on in the past and or I realize I've already seen those things and really love them that also helps, you know, there are definitely times where I read a script or get, you know, a log line about something and that sounds super interesting and then i kind of look at the team that's putting it together and that kind of makes me feel like oh maybe maybe i, I don't want to be a part of it so it's funny as i interview people for this podcast more and more i'm discovering that who you're working with is becoming more and more more relevant for people than you know as much if not more so than the creative itself because it's a big time investment and you know you have to spend a lot of time with these people so working with cool people is, you know, a big part of the decision, right? Yeah, definitely. And you're also, um, you know, the best version of this collaborative process is uh, generating a lot of moments of vulnerability. And so you also mm. have people that you feel okay being vulnerable with. You feel like that's, that everybody is doing that on the same level or that, you know, your process of doing that is being supported or, or that they're holding space for that part of the process. So I think that yeah, there have been a couple of times where I've gone through that process of being really vulnerable, working on something, and the collaborators maybe didn't provide an environment that made me feel like that was worth doing, you know? And so definitely being mindful of, of whether or not 
I feel like this potential collaborator will um, kind of create that uh, environment that feels like it's worth going there because that feels like that creates the best work when we're able to go there. Well, well, speaking to that, actually, that sort of pragmatic and creative side, there's th- that's almost like a constant clash in this world, right, between <laughs> finance and, you know, practicality. And then it's ultimately incredibly creative and inspirational, you know, this kind of stuff. So mm. are you, do you have separate parts of your brain that are sort of battling each other? Or are you able to sort of put yourself in one mode in a certain meeting and another mode in a certain environment? How do you sort of juggle those two things? Yeah, I definitely am being more working to be more conscious of where my mind is naturally going in terms of those, you know, different sides. And then also at the same time, what's necessary for the moment. You know, I think um, in every phase of the process, even in the creative process, there's some so many times where I want my mind to fully be in the exploratory, uh, generative, like creative space and not in the editorial organizational space. And so trying to separate those so that I give myself space to play and not think about whether or not this is going to work or whether or not this is the right idea or any of that. And then once I have something to react to, then I go more to the organizational side of my mind and and figure out how to structure it or if it's going to make sense. And it's simply difficult, but I try my best to be aware of those two sides and push myself in either direction when it feels like it's necessary. And then, you know, like you were saying, I think in the process of this industry, there definitely is a back and forth of like having conversations that are much more um, about creative and like, you know, open sky, like just kind of throwing paint at the wall type of conversations and then conversations that are about like, okay, well, how are we going to get this done? Like, what's the schedule? Is it like, you know, yeah. all that kind of, um, yeah, I, I actually thrive. I, I love both parts of those, um, uh, you know, mental processes. So, so for me, it's, it's fun to kind of live in both, but it definitely is tough to separate them. I, I try to be mindful of that. Yeah. Very cool. So I was looking through your IMDB, which is really extensive you know you've worked a ton over the last you know 10 plus years 10 15 years your signature style if that is is the way to describe it is very eclectic you know you're working across genres styles eras you know everything it's a sort of two-part question i guess do you feel you have a signature composing style and if not do you feel that eclecticism is what people are drawn to when they want to work with you. Yeah, I definitely think that it seems like the latter is true. You know, I think that that's what I appreciate about the collaborators I've worked with because, you know, there are a lot of projects that kind of go all over the place genre-wise or style-wise, but a lot of repeat collaborators. Um, uh, Someone like Ray Green, who I'm working with right now on a Bob Marley movie, and we just did King Richard together. That's very different, you know, stylistic. Yeah. Uh, working with Shonda Rhimes on For the People and Bridgerton, very stylistically different. Or Ava on um, uh, When They See Us and DMZ, you know. So I think that I feel lucky that the collaborators I work with are often exploring different spaces and and they trust me to go into those different spaces with them. Uh, and for me, I think that that's part of what made me excited about being a composer in this space versus being a performer is that I could one day write this kind of music, one day go explore this kind of music. And uh, I'm always studying and learning and growing as a musician by just with the nature of exploring those different genres. Um, and then as far as like a style I, I don't know about a style. I think for me, the thing that probably exists across the board is hopefully, um, you know, strong attention to detail when it comes to thematic material, whether it's melodic or a palette, you know, something that thematically is uh, really intentional. And then my harmonic and rhythmic language, I think, is something that exists across the board that, you know, I just love with my jazz background, just more complex harmonies or harmonies that kind of feel like they they come from that space and same rhythmically, like I love music that I can dance to. I love like, you know, the the pop and like hip hop music that I grew up with. And so I think that that also exists in a lot of the projects I work on too. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned jazz then. It struck me that jazz is quite a good jumping off point, right? For a lot of genres, because a lot of genres have sort of spawned from jazz. So your experience in that world 
and love for that world is gives you that eclecticism is would that be fair to say yeah i totally agree totally agree so what is your relationship i'd like to know what the relationship is like between a composer and a director or a showrunner or something like that is there a formula for that like <laughs> how would you describe that relationship for someone that d- doesn't work in that world and people listening who who don't know what that would be like yeah i think that the biggest thing is helping this this um you know director filmmaker showrunner to feel comfortable having a conversation about an art form that they might not know very much about and for me the exciting part is is, is translating their thoughts and emotional desires for their project into music and you know sometimes that can be relatively easy if they feel like they have some sort of clarity with music whether it's um references that they feel very strongly about and they can talk about uh why this piece of music makes them feel a certain way or uh they're very clear with with um instruments that make them feel a certain way but other times it's the composer's job to try and find a way to get that information out you know um there are times where i'm working with a director and i write a piece of music and he or she will say oh that didn't really make me feel this way that i'm trying to feel and then i'll ask questions about like you know can i'll ask questions to try to get at whether or not it's something about the instrumentation something about the pace of the music is there another piece of music that makes them feel that way and if so can we talk about that instrumentation that that tempo uh and oftentimes i'll find that with those conversations it becomes clearer that oh for this director the sound of piano immediately means nostalgia or this director the sound of piano immediately means melodramatic and and not what they want you know or for this uh project that this director is working on they want a sound that's unplaceable and for this director they want like a very traditional sound so i think having those conversations to try to develop a shorthand and also clarity on what it is we're saying about the palette, you know, without needing to talk about it too much. Cause then we can get to the point where we're just talking emotionally. Like I love the process of talking to a director about what they want emotionally and then them trusting me to go interpret that musically. But in order to get there, I feel like you have to get to get on the same page with what does nostalgia sound like? What does fear sound like? What does anger sound like for this project, for this person? And then once we have that, then we can kind of get into scoring the the movie. Is it tough to get that feedback from a director when you've sent something in that presumably you're like invested in and it's something that's come out of you and they're like, yeah, I'm just not feeling it. Like, is that difficult? I mean, it can be. I think for me, it depends on the director. This goes back to that thing about, you know, the environment that's being created by that collaborator, because I think this is part of the process when we, you know, fail and figure out how to learn from that failure. And so directors that embrace that and, you know, are still mindful of the fact that we're on a schedule and, and yeah, but embrace that failure and say like, this isn't right, but here are the things maybe I, I am liking about it. Here are the things, here are the reasons why it's not working. Even if nothing's working, uh, uh, having that conversation about why it's not working is so helpful because anything we can do to start to learn from it. And there are times where I've done that and the director has articulated to me uh, that I went for the wrong feeling that really we should be feeling these other subtextual things in this, in this scene that I wasn't aware of, or really we should be looking at it from this person's POV. And, and I did it from a different character's POV. So if I've missed the mark, having a clear conversation about why and how I missed the mark allows me to feel good about that failure and and not feel like because uh, i'm you know this uh, my job is to serve the, the picture and so i'm not uh you know holding on to this piece of music like no it has to be this for me it's like okay great if i miss the mark then explain to me how and why and let's get there so we can serve the movie i think it becomes most difficult when someone just says like oh it's, it's not working for me like try again and there's no even if i yeah. try well like what's going on why is it and they're just like i don't know just it's not working for me like i think that's when the collaboration becomes tough yeah 
Yeah, I can imagine that's like, well, what do I do now? (laughs) (laughs) And I guess that's also better than like someone micromanaging you throughout the process as well. You don't want that either. Yeah, yeah. It's a tough balance for sure. Like uh, I don't envy, you know, being that director that has to trust uh, the process um, of collaboration. So were you left alone quite a lot to do your thing? And, and uh, you know, are, th- are there sort of milestones where you go in and go back to the director, sorry, okay, I've done this, or is it scene by scene, like, or is it different every time? It's somewhat different, but I try to, lately I've been trying my best to establish uh, a workflow and a process that I feel really good about and that also can establish consistency on the on the side of the director. So for me, I'll usually set up, if we're close to um, sharing the movie or close to... Uh, finishing the movie, we'll meet about every week and I'll um, have something to present for them every week. If it's really early on, we might meet every couple of weeks or every few weeks. And fortunately, well, in the beginning, I'll have a conversation with the director about, um, and often the editor about where they want me to get started. Like, is there a point in the movie where they're like, we either need music here, we're suffering without music here, or we're really excited about this part or this part is going to be really challenging. And that kind of helps me figure out where to start. But often the directors and collaborators I work with are encouraging of me just responding to wherever I want to start. And so for me, I usually wait until I find a part in the movie that either speaks to me so viscerally that, that the music is pretty obvious in my mind, like how I want to approach it and, or a moment that feels like, it's so integral to this character or this thematic idea in the movie that that's going to be very fruitful to start with so that it can then help inform other spots. And so I might start with this really central uh, scene between these two characters that will establish a theme or a couple of themes that I can then go and, you know, jump around the movie and start to see how that theme works. So I often like to jump around a bit, but work thematically so that we can start to see, okay, every time we're talking about this character or this this idea, um, this is the theme that's going to happen. How do we feel about the progression of that? And will it you know, pay off in the end of it? And then doing that with a bunch of the different themes and then starting to piece it together uh, feels like the, the way that I generally type like to work. And do you ever throw like a real like left field option in there, like something complete, maybe for like uh, Bridgerton or Green Book or something like that, where it's a period piece and maybe you bring in like a contemporary sound or something like that? I don't know. This isn't phrased as a question really, but <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's usually the first place I start because for me, I'm like, you know, we don't have much time and it's always best to start with like, the more wild ideas to just throw paint at the wall and see if this is going to work. And and if it's not going to work, then, you know, that allows it. It's always easier to kind of like pull back than to do a safer approach and then, you know, get down the line. And then all of a sudden somebody's like, did we ever try anything unorthodox or unusual? Uh, So for Bridgerton, that's a great example where um, they told me they wanted this to feel modern and to feel like a surprising take on this period piece and all of that and so the first version the first piece of music i wrote was i took like classical instrumentation and orchestration and then chopped it up like samples and made samples out of it and then mm. made like a hip-hop beat for the i scored this ball and i made this like you know club type track uh with or- orchestral orchestral parts and the director like, no, that's, that's definitely not it. <laughs> you know, I think that, again, was helpful because then we talked about why and that it felt too modern and it felt like because it was so modern against the period piece, it actually felt like something we've seen before because there's been a lot of that where there's like really, really modern stuff on on period pieces. And then um, I tried writing very much in the style and then producing it in a way that felt a little bit more modern, but that just kind of translated as as it being of the period uh so you know definitely was a bit of trial and error before we found the sound for bridgerton and and i appreciate again having that trust that i'm trying this this wild different thing purposefully knowing that we can always come back to something else so it's great when a director or showrunner in that instance doesn't get fearful when they hear that first piece of music that totally isn't right and they're like we have to find somebody else that when they 
encourage that failure for us to find something that works uh, it makes a great collaborative environment. Yeah, that that really does speak to that importance of collaboration and trusting in you know the people that you're working with. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you know your your job in in this instance is to serve the the piece. How different is that to when you're just composing sort of for its own sake, right? And you're just composing for like an album or whatever for something for yourself. Is that a completely different mind shift? Uh, not really, because I still, for me come up with some sort of idea that I'm aiming to paint or score musically. Like I'll either think of an actual storyline, like I wrote a, a horn concerto for the LA Phil and I wrote a short story and then pulled some imagery that felt like that short story was about a hunter. And um, so the whole time, it just helped me so that whenever I was stuck, I could always go, well, what's happening in the story right now? Like what perspective am I looking from? Like, what am I t supposed to feel? And that always is my North star. And so I think for me, that's kind of always been the process where I'm thinking of expressing a specific idea or emotion. And I can always go back to that whenever I feel a bit lost. And then for me, it just makes what I'm writing feel intentional and purposeful because otherwise it can be very easy to write for, you know, the, mental theoretical side of my brain that just is excited about some cool musical idea or you know but that just feels like it's it's um less purposeful in terms of like sharing this art with other people that might be able to feel something deeper for, for to me for that it's helpful to have an emotional uh north star and how much of that is literally restricting options because now with Pro Tools or whatever, you can have 300 tracks, you have virtual instruments of every instrument on the planet, you know, like you can literally do anything anytime, right? It's it's liberating, but it's also overwhelming having that freedom, right? Yeah, exactly. Like you said, I think it's so helpful for me to um, have that restricting thing, that clarity distills all of these options and possibilities into something that is super specific. Uh, and, and that's, yeah, really helpful for me. Yeah. Okay, so sharp left turn. <laughs> um, <laughs> you worked with Aretha Franklin, right? Well, so I, I had a relationship with her. I played for like birthday parties and Christmas parties and uh, had like a strong relationship with her. And I played at, you know, her uh, getting to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and stuff like that, but I actually never worked directly with her. Right. But we had a, yeah, a long um, friendship even, I would call it. Yeah. I mean, I just want to hear about what that was like <laughs> I, I don't have a question <laughs> what's it like being around aretha franklin <laughs> yeah oh man i mean she's such a presence and like but she also was such a um uh, a student which i think was so amazing that's kind of what connected us in the beginning like she heard me play at the monk competition um uh and she came to the semifinals. she was getting a, an award like a lifetime achievement award uh at the finals and she came to the semifinals to hear all the pianists that were competing. And after I finished playing, I was walking backstage and somebody was like, do you mind meeting someone? And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And as we're going out to the front, they're like, it's Aretha Franklin we're about to meet. <laughs> and I remember being super speechless and talking to her in the lobby of this performance hall. And she was like, yeah, you were very good. And, you know, I'd love to stay in touch. Can I have your number? And she went on to tell people that I was her favorite and she hoped that I won and all that. And so I'd say maybe like a week or so after the competition, I got a call from a number I didn't recognize and I was in the car on the way to a gig and um, I'm on the phone and this woman is like, so what'd you think of the competition? And I was like, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was great. And like, you know, I'm glad I won. I feel thankful, but yeah. And in my head, I was like, who is this person? And she was like, yeah, well, you know, do you know what you're going to do with your career? And then at some point she said something like, well, if you're not satisfied with with uh, the record label that you're on from the competition, you know, we could always talk about you being on Aretha Records. And I was like, wait, I'm talking to Aretha Franklin right now. <laughs> my old Demeter changed and luckily I hadn't said anything embarrassing up to that point. But uh, that first manager I had came from her. Like in that conversation, she was like, if you don't have a manager, your first manager should be like your publicist. And my publicist, I think, would make a great manager for you. So you should talk to Tracy Jordan. She should be your manager. And then again, she just would ask me to 
play for these events for her. Every now and then she would call me to ask me just what I was working on, what I was practicing, um, what pianist I was really into, just because she was always trying to get better at the piano. She really loved pianists and talking to pianists about the piano. And so we had a lot of conversations about different exercises I was working on or people I was checking out. And, um, and, you know, we talked a lot about the possibility of me playing with her or opening up for her or something like that. And that never came to fruition, but, um, but along the way, it was definitely a fun relationship. Yeah. I mean, she's a hell of a piano player too, right? She was amazing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I think people forget that, or at least I did until, you know, I went back and listened to all those records and focused on her piano playing and it was pretty phenomenal. Were you at the show, I forget which one it was, where she came on in the fur coat and she took the fur coat off and she played, I think, Natural Woman, I think she played Natural, I think that was the song that she played, but I was like, man, she plays, she's an amazing (laughs) piano player, like, I didn't even know. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny you say that, I'm like, I feel like that's every show she has a fur coat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Probably doesn't narrow it down. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we're sort of jumping around a bit here, but can you talk about what it feels like to go into a movie theater and to watch it with your score playing? It, it must be a pretty overwhelming feeling, or I, mean, I guess you're used to it now, but I mean, it, it must be kind of quite a rewarding sensation. Yeah, totally. I think it's, I never get used to it because it, because what's always so fascinating to me is watching a movie with an audience and seeing an audience react to something all together and seeing how the music is um, you know, hopefully helping that that reaction and and that um, feeling. And so, uh, for me, it just that point always reminds me of of why I wanted to do this when I was a kid and what made me fall in love with this medium. Um, yeah, and it, it never gets old. At least, yeah, not not right now. I watched Anthem last night and I loved it. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Um, yeah. So how did the concept come about? And just for listeners who are unaware, can you just briefly explain what the concept is for the for the film? Yeah, so the film follows myself and a uh, producer named Dahi. Uh, he's an incredible producer that produced for uh, Kendrick Lamar and Madonna and all these huge artists. Um, and uh, we go on a road trip uh, to all these different musical locations in the country to investigate the American sound and the history of American music to uh, try and write a piece of music that can represent the country almost as uh, an anthem, which is where the title comes from. And the idea really sprung from a conversation I had with Pete Nix, the director. Uh, He came to me years ago uh, talking about uh, wanting to explore the national anthem and around the time that he and I met, I had also worked on another project that uh, this uh, art installation that explored the anthem. And so both and I, uh, he and I were talking about how fascinating it was that you know this piece of music that um, we all know as the sound of our country in this you know very nationalist uh, nationalistic piece of music is actually um, like a British song. And so it was just so fascinating to me that like. Yeah, we this thing that feels very American is not at all in terms of the history of it, um, and uh, that Francis Scott Key wrote this this poem to a British um, like drinking song essentially, and um, uh, what would it sound like to reimagine the anthem in today's time? Not only taking into account just how, what our world looks like, you know, the people here and and the experiences here, but also um, uh, musically, just given that. Uh, we are a country that is so influential musically in the in the world. Can we write a piece of music that that celebrates that American sound essentially? Um, and so, yeah, Pete and I talked about that a few years before we even started really producing the project. Um, and then it just started to he really just stuck with it, and and eventually it came to um, to Hulu and Disney, and and they really helped us put it together, and and uh, yeah, and then we filmed it a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was fascinating. Obviously, it's I get I say obviously, but you know I've been in this country long enough to know that something like that is very charged emotionally, politically, socially, and it struck me that it spoke to a a, a culture of 
because something is familiar, it can't change. There's a lot of, um, well, it's been the same for so long, we can't possibly change it. That sort of tyranny of familiarity. <laughs> and so you even discussing the idea, well, maybe we don't have to have this anthem. Maybe this isn't something that it has to be the same forevermore was challenging for a lot of the people that you spoke to. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think like, um, you know, it's interesting how much the song has become a symbol. And also, like you said, people don't really, are just very uncomfortable with change. I mean, you know, I think about these things uh, as being similar to like family dynamics or even uh, a person like Joy Harjo in the film says that she thinks of a country as a person. And mm. when you talk to anybody about changing an aspect of who they are that's been a part of their identity for so long it's a very painful and scary thing and most people don't want to do that um and so to do that on on a country level i think the thing is that people fear that if we change it then like there's so much reflection and questioning um about who we are or what we are and that creates this sense of chaos that that is really scary and so i think having something that no matter what, we just accept as uh, this stationary thing, I think allows us to feel like a bit of safety, you know? And so a lot of people, it's funny, even some of the people that aren't in the film, there are times where we were having conversations in each of these cities. And I remember in one city we were packing up and the woman that worked at the venue was like, oh, I just love the anthem so much. And, and I, I don't know why anybody would want to change it and we were saying well you know some people don't feel that great about it or some people like get negative feelings when they hear it and she was like i I just don't understand like you know when i hear that song i think about my family i think about you know the people i love and it was in that conversation that it struck me that this woman actually doesn't love the song she loves what it makes her feel she loves the fact mm. that this song makes her think about her family and she loves her family and so now her feelings about her family have been projected onto this song. And so, you know, we wrapped up so much, either positive or negative, we've wrapped up so much of our feelings to this piece of music. Uh, and I think anybody that has wrapped up something positive with it, changing that might change. It feels like you're, you're, you're uh, coming for, you know, their family in a lot of ways, which um, this film is really trying to examine that, that projection and that relationship with this, this thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you think there's an element of possibly guilt in there as well that admitting that acknowledging that maybe this song isn't perfectly representative of of America today, there's a sort of in admitting that there's a sort of admission of guilt that maybe America isn't perfect and that's tied up in that particularly for people who are privileged <laughs> who don't want to acknowledge it. Yeah, I think, and also there's like so much complexity to that. You know, I think it's unfortunate that there's a lot of like generational guilt or this guilt that like, you know, people don't know what to do with because they have so much complexity with like their own lives and stuff. You know, I think about how much people get mad about the idea of, of privilege because they examine their own lives and feel like there's so much about it that didn't feel very privileged. Um, and, you know, then it gets difficult to argue with them about like, what aspects of of their uh, existence you know inherently creates privilege even though they maybe didn't feel like they had that and and so i think the guilt is is not really like a clear and clean guilt where they can even acknowledge that you know and i think it's also just the fear of you know i, I think about like my own family like every family has something in its past that feels like difficult to acknowledge you know and i think that like especially in my family, there's like things that come out of slavery or things that come out of like, you know, the, the unfortunate aspect of, of how families in this country might come into existence, like that come out of, uh, slavery, whether it's like, you know, slave owner with their, their slave or just all of that history. And my family, some members of my family don't want to talk about that because for them, it's like, I don't like, I feel so good right now. I feel so, so much positive regard for myself, my positive regard for our family that like acknowledging anything negative feels like it, it takes me to a place I don't want to go. And I think that's the same on a larger scale with this country that like people are so fearful that acknowledging something negative is going to 
take us into a negative direction uh, that they only want to stay in the positive. But what we know from therapy or like any anything is just that you have to acknowledge those things to move forward in a in a real way and and not have that become this like fractured part of your foundation, you know. And so I think it's just um, stubbornness that you know look how many people don't want to go to therapy because they don't want to talk about the bad things, they don't want to look at the bad things, or even on social media we have we've built this. Uh, you know, way of communicating around only talking about the positive things, only talking about the good things. And it's definitely changed, you know, with how crazy our country has come. But I think that's also just, it's like the shadow self, you know, like, I think that when you don't, as an individual, look at the shadow self, like the Jungian idea, like, you know, this, this shadow side, that side is going to come out whether you like it or not. And so it's helpful to acknowledge it so that you can figure out how to grapple with it um, before it overtakes you. And I think that's what's happening in our country is like this shadow self that's existed for the the existence of our country is uh, coming out because it has to come out. And so we either are going to talk about it or we're going to suppress it again. And then at some point it's going to come back up again. So like, yeah, it just depends on um, what we do moving forward. But I think it's, it's a good thing to have these types of conversations about the the negative darker side of things so we can figure out how to move through the pain of it and hopefully move forward in a, in a better way. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And coming out of trauma of any kind, and this is a sort of collective trauma in this country of, right. you know, what everything that's happened and continues to happen, you know, those initial stages are, are not painless, right? They're, they're, they're difficult and they're challenging and, and it, it can feel like things going backwards before they move forward. But, you know, was it better 10, 15 years ago when we weren't having these conversations, even though it's difficult and it's it's maybe triggering, for want of a better word, for people on the, the left, the right, the center, you know, politically? Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, that's something else that attracted me to movies is the psychological exploration that's happening when you watch a movie and you know, the hero's journey is literally about going into that dark side and, and grappling with it and, and, um, coming out or sometimes tragically not coming out on the other side. And, and, you know, I think that that's a lot of what happens, uh, on this larger scale with us as a country is like, we're on a hero's journey and, and, you know, we have to kind of battle these, these demons. And, and, uh, like you said, it's definitely, uh, there's always a, a darkest point in that, in that journey that uh, is not very comfortable and very difficult. And the the aim, though, always is to come out of that embracing this this learned uh, new part of self um, on the other side of the journey. And I hope that we recognize that as a country so that we can actually aim for that as opposed to continuing to, or, or to, to have a more tragic hero's journey. You know, when you look at uh, the, the journeys that maybe don't figure out how to deal with this, this other side. Yeah, absolutely. Pivoting slightly. I'm, I'd never heard Jose Feliciano's version of the Star Spangled Banner before. Yes. And it was beautiful. Yeah. And it had, it had such a negative reaction are you, were you familiar with it? Yeah, I actually hadn't uh, heard that version before this project. Um, I was familiar with some of the other more, or the, some of the other moments where people deviated and, and that wasn't received so well. Um, but that one, like you said, really surprised me too, because it felt so uh, beautiful. I think it's also like, that one reminded me a lot of the moments where you go to a concert and somebody's going to play their hit song and they change the way that it sounds. And people get very frustrated by it because there's this sense of ownership over this music that they feel like, and so much of the reason they're coming to that show is to be able to sing that song. And if they can't sing with you, it's, it's infuriating. You know, it feels frustrating that they can't like sing along. And that's one where I thought about the fact that like, maybe people are, I mean, there's a, a lot of reasons why they're upset, but, and some that don't make sense to me uh, in terms of like, yeah, I, I feel like people get upset when someone of a certain race does that. Um, but I think one of the biggest things is like, no matter what the person looks like, if you change the song and the people can't sing along to it, they get upset by that, you know? And I think that one really stood out to me because it's such a beautiful emotional rendition of it, but it forces the people there to like sit and listen. And, and that's not where they come to a baseball game to do. They want to yeah. feel the familiarity of it. 
it was it was very striking to watch that. I was like, oh wow, I I never I never heard it done like that before, and I'd never heard his performance. Mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with Jimi Hendrix's version because I'm a massive Jimi Hendrix nerd, mm-hmm. um, and you know his his version at Woodstock. Um, mm-hmm. That that kind of been cheap to license that. So, but I really appreciate you putting that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And it was also that was surprising to me that I didn't realize that he had performed that song a lot of times before and after the Woodstock. Like that was kind of like the peak of this, this, you know, journey of the song, uh, of his, his journey with that song. Like he actually was performing at a lot of live events and a live concerts. And then that just happens to be one of them, but one of the greatest by far, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was phenomenal. And there was a moment in the film where there was a bit of a, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a full on argument, but there was a little tension between the, the country sing. I, I'm sorry, I, I forget her yeah, name. Charity. Yeah. Charity. Bell. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that moment? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, basically, uh, in the beginning of the film, it starts off with Dahi and I taking on this task and over the course of the, the project, even outside of filming, we talked with Pete a lot about the fact that we need to have a, a team do this and write the song together. And so we ended up collecting some of these artists that we met along the journey to form this writer's room with a handful of, of singers. Uh, but part of our intention in creating each of the conversation groups in each of the city was to find people that have differing opinions about the anthem and a big part of that is just because Pete as a filmmaker, which is one of the only reasons why I said yes to this is because Pete as a filmmaker is incredible at approaching a very divisive, difficult subject matter in a uh, in an unbiased, purely objective way, you know, or as objective as possible. Like he's a true verite filmmaker where he's trying to present every uh, viewpoint on something on equal footing and not not have it feel like this this is the right answer essentially and so you know i think that with this he talked from the very beginning about us creating rooms where you had people that felt very different feelings and the hope of the film is to still be able to have some sort of conversation through that still work through these differing opinions through conversation and so even in the creation of this writer's room for the song we pulled uh, purposely people that had differing opinions, especially because if you're going to write a piece of music about the country, you have to have as many viewpoints in the room as possible. I mean, we talked about the fact that like, we're very aware of the fact that there are so many viewpoints that weren't represented in that space because we only had a handful of people, but even in that wanting to have people that have differing viewpoints. And so, yeah, there's inevitably going to be a moment like there was with charity in Ladonia where, you know, they have, totally different experiences in this country. Like Charity comes from a a history uh, of pride in this country. Her family served in the military. She has a love for the anthem. Like she has a deep love for this country and what it means to her and what it means to her family and and, uh, what they've fought for. And Ladonia has a totally different, Cecilia has a totally different idea of what it means to fight in this country and 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 the fact that she and her family have never felt accepted in this country and and you know for her she really believes in the idea that you know we shouldn't even have borders uh like globally there shouldn't be anything as borders and you know all of that and so having those two viewpoints in the room are definitely going and trying to write a song together you know was yeah. going to inevitably lead to people disagreeing and i think that that's what was so um interesting about this experiment to write this song in this way is can you have those differing viewpoints and still create something and that's really on a micro level like the question to the country like can we have these differing viewpoints and still create something beautiful in in terms of like what this country is um and uh so yeah i'm glad that i appreciate them for for being willing and vulnerable enough to not only join knowing that there are people with such strongly different opposing viewpoints um on the project and on the team with them uh but also to still push through that and try to make something and not walk away at that at that point of difficulty yeah i mean was that that must have been a concern for you right (laughs) that that this didn't necessarily end in a beautiful collaboration and someone didn't end up storming out or you know that must have been worrying right yeah for me it wasn't worrying for me the part that like i i said yes to this because i was interested in the experiment of it like to me this was like 
like, can this happen? Like, I, I wasn't going into it like, oh, we have to do this. Like, we have to figure out a way to write this piece of music. Like, there's a part of me that was like, this might all like fall apart. And then that would also be an interesting, <laughs> like, yeah, showcase of how this process happened. So I, I walked into it very open to, to that. And so that also allowed us to not, you know, to let these people feel like they had the freedom to, to, to continue on or to walk away if they wanted to, you know, I think it was expressing to them the importance of doing this all together. But at the same time, like that's such a, an honest depiction of how someone might feel at this time in our country. And so that's the case, then, then that'd be the case. And that would have been a different ending to the, to the film that would have been just as valid as, as us actually writing a song all together. And so, you know, I'm glad that we were able to for the, just in the same way that like in the hero's journey, I, I, I am hopeful that, you know, we as a country continue to work through those difficulties to still make something, but there's also a version of it there where that doesn't happen. So, you know, I think it's uh, a, a good thing that that happened in the movie, but, but um, I wasn't afraid of the other op- alternative because that's always a possibility. Yeah, that's great. Well, I've got to let you go. Um, but before I do, I'd love to have, hear any advice that you have for, any young composers out there wanting to get into the kind of work that you do. Obviously, it's a bit of a different world now, 2023. You know, people starting out now may not have the same experience that you did growing up and and growing into this career. What would you advise for those looking to get into this kind of work? Yeah, I would definitely advise studying everything possible and, and being obsessed with craft and that being, you know, the actual craft of composing or producing and composing in, in whatever style or genre that moves you and and following that I feel excited about the time we're in now where you don't have to be this expert at orchestration to be a film composer you can be you know an incredible hip hop producer and be a film composer you can be an incredible rock musician to be a film composer so really it's just about continuing to hone your craft whatever that is but also uh really learning as much as possible about the art of film composing as it relates to expressing emotion and story through music. Um, And then the other thing I'd say is just to get to know yourself because that is the part that feels most difficult in this industry is, you know, there's so many times where you're interacting with failure or you're interacting with, you know, people saying no or, or, you know, things that just don't really feel good um, in the process of, of creation and, you know, that reverberates internally where something is going to come up that makes you feel badly about yourself or makes you feel overly prideful or whatever it is. And so getting to know that way that your mind processes these these difficult moments so that you can move through those, those moments um, uh, with as much grace as possible. Well, perfect. Perfect ending to the pod. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I really appreciate talking to you today. I love the movie and, you know, fantastic advice to end there um, for those looking to get into this. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Jamie. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Special thanks, of course, to Chris Bowers. You can check out Anthem on Hulu. And also, if you'd like to follow us on social media, we're Soundstage Insider on Instagram and Soundstage In on Twitter. Don't forget to also check out Backstages in the Envelope podcast, which is our sister podcast. And yeah, that's pretty much it for today. So have a great week and I'll see you next time. Bye bye.